This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So for those of you that are unfamiliar, I've been going through on Sundays a series, which is unusual for me. I don't typically, you know, if you historic Ellerslie church services, I don't go through series, even though they, I had these micro series where we would actually have long messages and divide them into three parts and call them a series. Uh, but that's sort of the cheater's man's way of doing a, a, a series. But this is an actual series, and it's called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, which is going through the foundations of how this country was formed, but not to teach you American history. That's not what this is. This is not a history class. This is a class in the Word of God. Uh, We want to learn how Christians function. The reason I'm using this as a template is because the formation of a nation is very similar to the formation of a Christian. God, the same thing God does in nations, he does in individuals. The same thing he does in individuals, he does in nations. There's a formation process. There is a process of discovery, of, of awakening, and there's a process of building and establishing a government. And what we see in our nation's history is one of the rarest, if not the most rare, form of construction that has ever taken place to reveal the kingdom of heaven. It's an extraordinary history that we have that we are flushing down the toilet right now without a second thought. Now, I've made it very clear in here throughout this series, I do not idolize American history. I do not idolize uh, the Constitution of the United States. I highly admire the history of America. I am proud in the right sense, hopefully, to be an American. Uh, I love the Constitution. I think it is an amazing document, but it is not the Word of God. It is inspired and built upon the Word of God, and it expresses in a beautiful way the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God. And if you're going to see where I die, I will not die on the Constitution or on our American heritage. I am grieved when we topple our history and spray paint it. But that is not because I just worship American history, it's that it reflects something that is lost in this world when we do. And that is God's providence, God's care over nations. That God listens to prayer and answers it. That God heals wounds. That God can create a safe haven for those that are being persecuted. Just like the church, it can receive in those that are abused and harmed and we can be a bastion of hope. There is something that has taken place in our history that is worth remembering. And I had, I, I think I said this last week, but I had a conversation uh, with one of my good friends who was feeling the same things I was, but he was like, Eric, at what point do we, you know, we need to fight for God's truth and his kingdom, but then we have American history and we both care deeply about it. At what point do we choose. I mean, do we die on the hill of American history and, you know, protecting statues? Is that what we do? No. And, but at the same time, we, there's a reasonable grievance that has taken place. And that is, and I, I use the illustration of his father, who he was very close to, who had just passed away the previous year. And he said, if someone came up and wanted to delete the memory of your father, would that matter to you? And it doesn't mean you worship your father, you follow your father as, as the end all. It's just that that is part of who you are. And to separate that memory from your future is a weird reality. Why would you do that? That's a good question. Why would you do that? Our pasts and our histories all have flaws in them. 
And if we threw out the histories with flaws, none of us would have a history. If we looked for the perfect history, we could find one, and that is the life of Jesus Christ. And what's funny is even in his lineage, ironically, his physical lineage, there's all sorts of black marks. And in that history, you're going to see flaws and failures. You're going to see prostitutes. You're going to see murders. You're going to see all sorts of things take place. And Jesus is going to come out of that lineage on purpose. He shows that he takes human frailty and redeems it. He is a redemptive God. Let's learn from history this amazing lesson. So, as we go through American history, we're in the early 1600s. And now I've fluctuated up into the 1650s, and now I'm back down to the early 1600s. I'm just in that zone, we'll just say, because there's a lot going on. You have the age of discovery that is awakened. Columbus uh, is going to sail uh, and discover in 1492 this new world. And what he thinks is actually Asia. Uh, in India, and instead it's going to be this new location. And what started out as a missionary venture, Columbus is going to have this whole guise of being a light bearer. He wants to share the gospel, and I believe him. I believe that that was his intent. However, he had greed as a cornerstone of his life that was never dealt with. Now, back in the late 1400s, you have a very unhealthy church. You're in the Dark Ages, okay? The we're, the, the church, if any of us were to look at it, we're like, is that even the church? Would you even call that the church? So Columbus is coming out of a very unhealthy system, but it's right at the time of a certain awakening. We could call it the awakening of missions. At the same time, there's the awakening of ex- exploration and discovery. You have this awakening of missions. You've had the church of Jesus Christ. Anyone who's strong and serious about Jesus, you know where they've been? They've been in a monastery for a long time. So the light has not been shared with the world. So we have a dark age. Yeah, you hide light under a bushel to preserve it, to protect it, lest we lose it, and guess what? You're going to lose it. And so what we have is an awakening that is taking place to missions. And this is right at the time Columbus is discovering this new world. And so it's going to break up into two lines. You're going to have the conquistadors, those that are going to come from Spain in search of gold. And really, we could blame it all on Columbus true too you know and it's like well what's he, he's not guilty just because he discovered land no he also discovered gold and it went straight to his head this, Columbus I'm not actually wanting any of us to grow up to be like Columbus okay I I love what happened through his life and actually there are certain aspects of his life that are profound and his dogged belief that there he was going to discover something he's going to keep sailing and if it's over the edge of the world he doesn't care he's going to find this thing and he does. I mean, it's, it's truly a remarkable story. But then he is such a bad governor, he's going to be booted out of Hispaniola, and they don't want him anymore. And so he's going to have some more expeditions, and he's going to discover Central and South America. Well, you know what else he discovers? Gold down there. And that's exactly what the Europeans are looking for. There are two things happening in Europe at this time. There's a stirring. This reformation is taking place right at this exact time. There's this passion to share the gospel. It's a very interesting stirring that is taking place, but there's also a stirring for gold. And so you're going to have the conquistadors that are going to go to Central and South America. And you know the reason why they don't choose North America is because it doesn't have gold in it. That's the reason they don't, which leaves it to the missionaries. And our country that we know and love was actually discovered, most of the maps are made by missionaries. 
that are actually aggressively going after the souls of the natives. That's a whole different history that we don't get. We get the conquistadors. It's like, look at the basis of your country, conquistadors. No, I'm not saying they weren't there. And I'm not saying they didn't creep up and try and find gold. We are going to have gold rushes in uh, Colorado and in California. We're going to have those things happen. And it's going to bring in the same greed. However, we have a very pure strain where God was protecting something because he wanted to establish something different in this territory. It's actually quite amazing. So Spain, the Franciscans uh, are going to actually be the ones that are going to come up into the southwest of America, and they're going to establish missions. So you have New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California. You're going to see a lot of the, even the city names are very Spanish, and that's because you have the Spanish missionaries that are coming up to actually establish a missionary outpost in southwest, uh, the southwest of our country. In the northeast, you have this uh, New France area. It's in Canada. comes down into Michigan and Illinois, and then it is going to go down the Mississippi. And so this is New France, uh, and this is going to... You're seeing the, the setup if, as, you, as you study how these countries are coming in, but these are the Jesuits that are coming in to share the gospel. There are so many martyrdoms of these missionaries. This nation, which is a surprise to many Christians is actually founded and grounded upon men who literally went into some of the darkest places on earth. At this time, the Europeans are going to understand by the, 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 the reports that are coming back that this is probably the most savage, dark place on earth at the time. Yeah, America. See, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as, they call it the noble savages. You know, that everyone over here was nice and kind and we came over and beat them over the head. And I'm not going to excuse because that's gonna to happen too. However, that's not the whole story of what happened. You have a very dark, it's like the, the streets of New York and you have gang rule over here. And it's fear that controls this country. It's lawlessness. It's deception. It's false gods and spiritual powers are ruling. Did I just describe America and where we're headed? In other words, we're controlled by fear and lawlessness and a deception. You see, these are the ancient residents of this land. They are familiar spirits to this territory, and they want it back. And so what we see even in our current trajectory of America is we see those ancient spirits that are like, we want our territory back. All right, so this was gained in and through the blood of the martyrs, okay? Franciscans, Jesuits, and you're going to notice on, on this thing, I have Spain, the Franciscans, France, the Jesuits, England. Now, most of us are going to understand the English history to our country, and which is funny because, I mean, they're ultimately, Great Britain is going to be the one that ends up winning uh, over this territory. However, their initial steps forward have nothing to do with God. Their interest in this country was purely business, and they wanted a piece of the pie. So, that's what's interesting is, is the heritage. And I, you know, I've, I've been defending Great Britain in World War II a lot. In fact, I'll identify with Winston Churchill. And so I, I'm going to call a spade a spade. And I'm not very impressed with England in this time. So they go by England, Great Britain. It's, it depends on the, the, the time in history. So England at this time is what they're typically going to be referenced to or as. And so you're going to notice I have some question marks there. And that's going to play into the story here that I want to bring up today. Uh, so Queen Elizabeth I 
is going to be known, she never gets married, she's known as the Virgin Queen, which is where you're going to get the Virginia uh, colony from. So the, the state of Virginia, this is actually going to come because she was an adventurer. She was this sort of wild-eyed uh, character that loved to dream and imagine and loved the challenge and the dangers and the risks. She doesn't seem very motivated by Christ uh, or to propagate the gospel, but she loves adventure. And so she'll send out uh, some explorers out there to colonize, and they set up a little uh, settlement called Roanoke. So if you remember that, it didn't go so well, right? And so the English first steps into our country are going to be disastrous. But it's interesting because when you contrast that with, as I'm not going to defend Spain. Spain had its conquistadors, right? France had its issues too. But there's going to be missionaries out of these countries. Out of uh, England, there's no missionaries. We have no light of Christ that is shining. Now that's going to actually change as we progress. But this is what I want to land on as we move forward. Because Queen Elizabeth I is going to die and James I... King James, does that sound familiar in history? Uh, king James is actually going to take the throne, and he is going to be the king when this first wave of what we could call semi-successful settlements for the English is going to take place. And I don't know, it's strange, but if I were to say which country do you most identify with in, in American history, most of it, it's the English which is sort of sad as you hear my, me unfold the tale. It's like, boy, I don't know that I want to identify with the English, but that's not because of what we're going to hear now. It's actually because of what follows. It's the second wave of what God is going to do in and through the English, which is going to actually come out of persecution that is actually going to found and ground this country in a stable way. It's not this first wave. So we have something called the Virginia Charter in 1606, and King James is going to be convinced that England should once again try. I mean, Roanoke was an absolute disaster, okay? Everyone's dead. This is not good. This did not look good in the papers, okay? This did not look good to England. They, they're the laughing stock. So Spain and France are sort of chuckling to themselves, and because, you know, England has you know, has totally failed, whereas they have actually succeeded. They have all sorts of maps, and they have, you know, missions established. So England doesn't like that, but James I is a, is a conservative, okay? He, he doesn't, he's not like Queen Elizabeth I, and so, which she probably wasn't called Queen Elizabeth I. She was probably uh, called Elizabeth, right? Uh, because who knew that she was going to be the first of many? So James is going to be convinced that he should do it, but he's not going to sponsor it. He's not going to give them any money. So you want to do it? You're going to have to raise private funds. Okay, that's a new thing, to raise private funds. So these are called partners. This is where we get the term partners. So these partners are going to come together and create the Virginia Company. So some of you are remembering your American history as I go through. It's like, oh yeah, the Virginia Company. So that's all happening right now. So James I is going to issue this charter. No Englishman can go over there and just take territory without the authorization of the king. So he's going to authorize this, and that's called the Virginia Charter. And so this is what James requires. This is interesting. Compared to what the attitude was behind Roanoke and the attitude of just go over and get gold, go over and take down Spanish galleons, steal their gold. I mean, that's literally uh, Queen Elizabeth. It's just like, have fun at it, too. She just is a very different sort of lady. So James is a little more conservative, right? So he says the Virginia settlement is intended for 
The propagating of Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, and that they should in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts into human civility and to a settled and quiet government. Now when you read that, you nod along, and that's very noble. You know, I, hey, that's, that's a great purpose. So James feels all good. He sits back, he's like, ah, I've done my part. You guys can fund it, but just as long as, you know, on paper we get it right. James I is not going to go down as the most beloved king towards Christianity, ironically. So when, and I'm just going to hint at it, the pilgrims and the Puritans are not going to have the highest view of James I, which is one of the reasons why they're going to leave. <laughs> the reason they're even going to come to America, because of how he is going to rule. So the partners, the Virginia company, are also going to give a very explicit description of how this settlement should work. It's, it's privately funded, and these private funders have a spiritual agenda. So, I mean, everything looks really good on paper. So from the partners, our purpose for funding this settlement is to preach and baptize into the Christian religion and by the propagation of the gospel to recover out of the arms of the devil a number of poor and miserable souls wrapped up into death in an almost invincible ignorance. And here's the exhortation from the partners. The way to prosper and achieve good success is to make yourselves all of one mind for the good of your country and your own, and to serve and fear God, the giver of all goodness, for every plantation which our heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted out. So we have a human side to this, which is very different than how we function as Christians. We get our mandate from the king of all kings. He's perfect. He's not James I, okay? James I is a very imperfect model for this, and the the, the, the partners in the Virginia company, you know, I can't speak for their spiritual life. However, what they're saying is, is good. We receive a similar charter. We're going to receive a similar charter for this earth, and we have been given a task to accomplish on this earth. Go into the new world and plant a colony. It's a little different than that and how it comes out in Scripture, but it's similar. And when you do plant that colony, here's what you need to do. It's very specific, and it involves lifting high Christ, living Together, in peace and in unity, having one mind as a body. Isn't that interesting? And this is the commission. Well, we have a commission that sounds very similar to that. So doesn't that sound a lot like Paul's advice to the church at Corinth? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So... This whole colony, which is going to be called Jamestown, the Jamestown Settlement, is going to go over with a very clear directive. They know how they're supposed to live. They know what they're supposed to do. And yet, sort of like us, we could read 1 Corinthians. We have 1 Corinthians in our Bible, and most conservatives would say, that's the word of God. I'd say most conservatives, probably all conservatives would say, that's the word of God. There is a movement out there that is trying to decry Paul's books as not being uh, inspired. Boy, that gets me mad. Uh, but, okay, let's get back onto the topic. So there could be some conservatives out there. I don't, I don't know what to call them, what to call them. But this is very clear. And so how can we put up with denominations? How can we put up with it? It's actually unbiblical, if you want to say it. People use the term unbiblical all the time, and it's an incorrect statement, because it's just different than what you think, but it doesn't mean it's unbiblical. This, it is unbiblical to have denominations. It doesn't fit in the framework of the New Testament at all, 
And yet we live in a culture which accepts them, a Christian culture which is like, yeah, that's just the way it is. You're going to see a very clear directive, do not have divisions, you need to be of one mind, and the first thing these guys do when they get on the boat is start bickering. They start locking each other up in the prisons, uh, in the holes of the boat, and they're like, you can't come out. I mean, this is like disaster from the beginning. This whole story is embarrassing to read. If, if this is like our history, which it is, it's it like our history is like, I don't even want to expose it, but here it is. Okay, this is bad stuff. You know the history of the church? Uh, the church at Corinth? You know how people would say, I want to be, I want to be like a first century church. It's like, whoa, 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 correct that prayer. You want to be like a first century church, but not like the church at Corinth. <laughs> the church at Corinth is a disaster. They're divided, they're bickering, they're fighting with each other constantly. They have you know, the liberals and they have the conservatives, they have, two party, they have a two-party system at Corinth. And they do not get along. And they have some terrible evils that are being done in that very church. And you could say, how could that? You know that God doesn't hide his history? Isn't that interesting? God's just sort of like, here it is. Yeah, this happened. Yeah, I'm gonna inspire the Holy Spirit to illuminate the fact of what Corinth is doing. Why would he do that? You see, God is not ashamed or afraid of actually showcasing the weakness of men. He's okay with it. In fact, if we don't know that we can't do this without him, then we'll never understand the power of the gospel. So how about Solomon's wisdom? Remember what they said? It's like, hey, you know, if you're going to establish this, it needs to be God that establishes it. So this is exactly what Solomon says in Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So the Jamestown settlement is going to be established in 1607, for those of you that love dates. You guys remember 1620? That's the Plymouth Plantation, okay? So you're going to have a 13-year gap between this first wave, which I could say is nonsense, and the second wave, which I'm going to say, okay, I can celebrate that. I want a whole feast called Thanksgiving to celebrate that. Okay, you're even going to see it in, in our history where we're going to deliberately choose not to celebrate the Jamestown settlement, but we're going to celebrate the Plymouth settlement. Okay, now that, that's something that's going right here. So uh, you're going to see where Virginia is and where Jamestown is, uh, where they're leaving in uh, England and making it to the Canary Islands, and then they're going to make it to the Caribbean area and then up to the Jamestown settlement, just so you get a visual of where we're at. So a word, disparity. It means discrepancy, inconsistency, incongruity, unevenness. The word of God can be very clear on something, and we can nod along and say yes, just like these guys did. So King James is going to give them a directive. This is how you need to live. This is your purpose. They're like, absolutely. We're going over there to share the gospel with the natives. Yeah, and to bring about a peaceful government. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And then the Virginia company comes in and says, and this is what you need to do. You can't have divisions among you, and you need to make sure that you allow the Lord to build the house. Absolutely, absolutely. But there's a discrepancy. There's a disparity between what they heard on the shores of England before they were sent off and the way that they were going to perform it. Okay, why am I bringing that up? Because I believe that there is a disparity today in the body of Christ that we are having a tough time calling out. The word of God is very clear about how we need to live even right now, and yet we are choosing to allow a disparity, an incongruity between what God's word says and the way that we are living. This is not unusual, this is actually part of Christian history, 
But this is when you see a separation of twos. You see those that are actually authentic and those that are false being separated out. Which is why I'm bringing it up as I desire so deeply that we as the church of Jesus Christ rise up right now and function according to the charter, according to the king's commission. What did he say? So I'm going to give you another definition of disparity, which maybe would help you understand it practically. Declaring one thing out of your mouth and another thing out of your life. You can measure a man's belief system by just watching his life. If he just closes his mouth and lives, you can see what he believes. Oh yeah, he can say all sorts of things out of his mouth, but watch him. Because what he's going to do with his life is actually declaring what he believes on the inside. So what you're going to see is these settlers, these uh, colonials, are going to come over and they are going to give head, you know, they're going to nod their head, wag their head, uh, you know, towards... England, they're going to do the exact opposite on the journey over and when they get here. And yet, their whole mission is to carry Christ. What they're doing is not carrying Christ. Jesus Christ says, let your yes be yes. When you stand on the shores of England and your king speaks to you and says, did you hear my word? Yes, sir. Do you understand my word? Yes, sir. Do you understand what you're supposed to do in this journey? Yes, sir. And then you go out and your yes becomes a no. And your no becomes a yes. You see, this isn't the pattern of the kingdom. The inner terrain of the Christian understands the significance of covenant, understands the significance of a charter, that when we are commissioned by a king to represent his name, we take it seriously. The Jamestown colonists, so this is me giving words to them, okay? Now, technically, we don't have this as an actual quote, but I'm going to give some conceptual words to them. We do this for God, as they stand on the shores of England. This is all about sharing the gospel. This is all about Christ's glory. Okay, now let's watch them. And I want you to decide if you think that's true. You see, what my desire is, is that we don't just say words like this and then live in an exact opposite way. But that if we're going to say these words, we live these words. Jesus Christ is going to bring this up, and I had a session that I switched yesterday in the Alumni Summit, and I, it was a stigma that I gave instead of what I was planning, and I had this same scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Not everyone who says to me on the shores of England, yes, king, I hear you, king. Yes, I understand what you're saying, king, I will do that, are going to actually establish a colony that represents the will of the king. But those that actually do the will of the king. The king has a will. He has a desire to express himself in this earth, and there is a doing that is essential. Not just an acknowledgement, not just a, a tongue flapping around, saying things in the wind, but a doing, a life alteration. So Jamestown, there were 104 gentlemen Christians. Remember my title for this, The Dangers of Gentleman Christianity? Why, why would that be dangerous? I mean, if I were to even just describe, I took, I, my title used to be uh, Gentleman Christianity, and I was thinking that could be misleading because I could see people saying, oh, that sounds really good. You see, gentleman Christianity sounds like gentle 
kind, respectful, honorable men living out their Christianity. It's like, oh, that's something Eric would be behind. I could see them saying, oh, I already know what Eric says about that. That's not what this is. These are gentlemen that are coming over uh, to settle a colony, and they have high ideals. They have a, a commission from the king, and they are going to do this for the glory of God. They believe in God, but they don't believe that they need to work. They're gentlemen. Gentlemen don't work. This is the most absurd story if you study it. You're just sort of like shaking your head going, are you serious? There's 104 gentlemen that are going over, and what do they need to do? They need to work the land. They need to farm the land. They need, they, all these are gentlemen. They don't work. They've never worked in their life. They don't know how to work. It's like, who picked them? You know how similar that is to the way we function? We come out of a gentlemanly background into the kingdom of heaven, and we're like, excuse me? You actually expect me to do something? I mean, we, this is a problem. It's called gentleman Christianity. Jesus Christ, Matthew 7, 21. I read this earlier, but I'm going to reiterate it and emphasize something. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does. Does. It's an action. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. So the king is given a commission. We don't just go over there with these high ideals and expect it just to fulfill itself. Oh, crops will just grow. Isn't that how it works? I mean, it's literally when you, when you talk to these Jamestown guys, you're just like, what are you thinking? They're like, well, I'm not gonna work. And then the other guy's like, you think I'm gonna work? You think I'm gonna plow your ground? I'm not gonna do that. Hey, well, let's get some Indians to do it for us. I mean, this is like disaster waiting to happen. Can't you feel it? So Jamestown, let's go through the purpose. This is a noble purpose. Reach the natives with the gospel of Christ. Amen. Establish an English settlement. That sounds noble. Maximize the land for the strengthening of England. Oh, you know what? For the, the motherland. Uh, that, this is all very noble. So now listen to what they do practically. You could have a noble ambition. You could say, I want to do this for Jesus. However, you can tell what makes someone work by just watching how they do it. So listen to this. So they want to reach the natives with the gospel of Christ. One of the first things these guys do when they get off the boat is kill Indians. That's like how they're going to start this thing out. They are so self-protective. These Indians are lying in the, in the bushes, you know, in, in, under the trees, and they're like, who are these people? And so then when they realize that they're there, the guys draw their muskets and start shooting them. It's like, okay, guys, you blew it right from the beginning. This is not the way you're going to win the Indians is by killing them first thing. This is how they start, okay? Establish an English settlement. So what do you do for an English settlement? This is typically how all settlements have worked. You bring over married men with families, but you, they leave their family back home. This is, the, this is the pattern. This has always been the pattern. And you go over and establish a settlement, and then what do you do? The men go back, get their families, and come over and raise those families. Then you sort of grow and multiply. There's not one married man in the bunch. Okay, we got, did anyone think this through? How are you supposed to reproduce here? We got some issues. This is literally how they're starting. I don't know who, well, I do know who is in charge of this, but it's interesting because it's a gentlemanly perspective. If you're a gentleman, you want to be around your kind. You want to have someone who tells you that, you know, you're appropriate, you're doing it right. It's very interesting because they're, they're sort of like surrounding themselves and self-justifying the whole while. 
maximize the land for the strengthening of England. So we're going to now take this land, which is great land, it's fertile land, and we're going to now harvest it. We're going to work it. These were gentlemen, and gentlemen don't work. Okay, we have disaster here. And the whole while, you know, all of us could cluck our tongues from a distance, but this is the version of Christianity we've grown up with. When I bring up stories of the persecuted church, most of us, you know, we check our fingernails and we're like, well, I'm glad I don't live there. (laughs) Uh, And we don't recognize the seriousness of the call that Christianity in America is called to the exact same thing that all Christians throughout history have been called to. There is no gentleman branch of Christianity. Every single one of us are toilers and workers. We're the working class. We are the ones that God has chosen, and he expects us to get, our, to get dirt underneath our fingernails. If we don't have it, something's wrong with our Christianity. He expects us to go into action mode, not sit back with our big hat to block out the sun and have our pina colada and sit in the rocking chair. This is not Christianity. It's functional. We don't have someone else live out our faith for us. We don't have someone else hoe the field for us. We don't have someone else go and share the gospel with the natives for us. We do it. This is our job. Jamestown, the disparity. So let's bring the gospel to the natives. So this is what they do in bringing the gospel to the natives. They bring one pastor along, and they make sure that that one pastor is not one of those extremist guys. You know, the one that's going to make them feel guilty? I mean, this is literally their decision-making criteria. So they're going to go over and obey the king's command, and they're going to pick a moderate, someone who's going to pat them on the back and say, you're all right, being a gentleman and not working, and totally contradicting everything the king asked you to do. So let's make sure this pastor is a moderate, and let's make sure that he is not one of those extremist Puritans. (laughs) That's their thinking. And so guess what? They sort of got what they were after. They got someone, now I have to admit, the guy did stand up in certain situations a little more powerfully than I would have thought he would have. And he he was not a terrible guy, okay? But compared to what would have happened if they'd gotten one of those extremists along, or how about they had half the group with just missionaries, Guys that were on fire for Jesus Christ, you know, uh, hey gentlemen, it's time to get to work. Hey guys, we need to do something about this. So I have an illustration I've used, some of you may have heard it in the past, but when I was trying to land this idea of how do you make a shift in your life from a previous pattern? You see, imagine that your commission is to make orange juice, and you're like, okay, And throughout your life, you've known about the commission, so you've always had a pitcher of water every day, and you'll take your your Kool-Aid mix, your orange Kool-Aid mix, and stick it in, and then you'll stir it up, and you'll go, there, God. And he begins to bring conviction that that's actually not orange juice, okay? (laughs) Eric, that's not orange juice. I don't know what that is, but it's it's destructive, okay? That's terrible for you. And so now, when we come to Christ and we realize that, and we are like, okay, God, I am so sorry that I've been making orange Kool-Aid all these years when you were asking for orange juice. I recognize that that's wrong. You know what we'll oftentimes do? We'll pray over our orange Kool-Aid. We'll we'll, we'll scoop it in still and we're like, God, could you take my orange Kool-Aid and somehow convert it to orange juice now? And that's the incorrect pattern for changing your life. 
You see, if you're a gentleman and you're used to someone else working for you and what you actually have to do is roll up your sleeves and work, what do you need to do? Not pray over your workers going, God, may what they're doing work for me now. May it be my work. It's not to actually try and cheat the system. It's to roll up your sleeves and say, okay, I've never done this before, but all right, and stick your hands into the dirt and start working. So the secret to making orange juice, you guys know what it is, isn't it? You, you take oranges and you peel them and you smash them and you get all that juice and you collect it in that same container that you've been using called your life. And God has a way for you to actually do what he has called you to do. If you will heed his word, he will bring you away from the false version into the real authentic version of doing something. And orange juice is good stuff. And it brings life, right? It has vitamin C in it. That's what my mom told me, right? So as a result, you get the nutrients out of that, whereas the Kool-Aid is going to kill you. Some of you are like, he keeps talking about my Kool-Aid, but I really like my orange Kool-Aid. Well, I'm just hoping that the conviction is, is here. So Jamestown fluff. Listen to this, guys. This will get you just stirred up. A whole bunch of selfish men, 104 of them, interested in becoming rich and famous. Technically, if you bake it down, that's what they want. They're vying for control. Look at the second one. A whole bunch of proud men vying for the position of control. You should hear, read the stories, and it's embarrassing. I mean, they're locking up Captain John Smith on the way across the Atlantic, you know, calling it mutiny. He's a threat. I mean, it's, the whole thing is just a joke. I mean, it's embarrassing. The, they are given a very specific, specific command to work together in harmony. And the moment they get on the boat, they're punching each other in the face. A whole bunch of lazy men looking for someone to do the work for them. If you approach your commission to cross the Atlantic and to function in this new world, which is hostile and full of savages, and you expect someone else to do the work for you, you're in trouble. You see, there is something that you are to do. Captain John Smith, isn't that a great picture, guys? Uh, he is going to give a quote that is going to become famous in American history, and it, I don't know why he gets credited with it, because it's just the Bible. But he that will not work shall not eat. So what does he have? Anyone that has to say that, you know that there's a problem. <laughs> he, has a, he has a settlement where no one wants to work. So it's like, okay, guys, here's the rule. If you don't work, you won't eat. Well, there's a good scriptural principle. First of all, it is the Bible, right? However, in your life as a Christian, if you are not ready to labor for God, there is something that is going to fall through the cracks. There is going to be a breakdown and a deterioration of your walk. However, as I bring up the word work, a lot of us get a little paranoid. It's like, is Eric, what, what, Eric's using the term work, but you know, we as Christians don't talk about work. Work is essential in Christianity. However, there's two different kinds of work. There's a capital W and there's a lowercase w. The capital W work is not something you can do. It's something that God has to do for you. And so we are saved by his capital W working on our behalf. We can't bear a cross ourselves and, and uh, we can't redeem ourselves. We can't atone for our sins. There's all sorts of things we can't do. We can't even change a soul to awaken to see the, the glories of Jesus. There is a work that only God can do, but then there's a lowercase w work that we are called to do. And so as, for instance, the scriptures are going to tell us to pray. Now we could say, oh, well, I can't do any work, so 
I mean, I'm not going to pray because I don't want to do any work. I'll let someone else do the praying for me. We're supposed to go. We're supposed to disciple. We're supposed to preach the gospel. Well, you know, I can't do any work, so I'm going to have to let someone else do the work for me. We become gentlemen Christians. What was it? 60 out of the 104 are going to die? You're going to run into some problems if you don't work. These guys are eating shoe leather. Okay, if I tell you even beyond that what they did in digging up dead corpses uh, to find some food, it is bad. Okay, this is like, okay, let's not follow this example or this trajectory. These guys are going to take a pattern into this country that I'm going to say, reject, don't follow it. The dangers of gentleman Christianity. There's a, it's what's interesting in Christian history is there, or in American history is you're going to see a parallel of the same time period under the same king. There is going to be another group that is going to come over to this country that is going to set a completely different pace, a completely different relationship with the natives, a completely different work ethic. <laughs> Everything about them is different. You take the pilgrims and the Puritans and contrast them with these first English colonists, and it's embarrassing for Jamestown. I mean, they're just like chagrined, red-faced. They look terrible. Right now, we have a separation in the body of Christ from those that are wanting to have a gentleman Christianity. They've always had it easy, and they don't like the thought of any difficulty coming to the church of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, they are not rolling up their sleeves right now. What I want to commission all of us to do is to roll up our sleeves and to behave like the pilgrims. <laughs> I want us to do this right. So there's the sheep and the goats. There's a separation. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. What's the difference? One does, one doesn't. That's, that's actually the difference between these two. Sheep will do something. Goats will not. Wheat and tares. What's the difference? They look similar as they're growing up. What's the difference? One is going to produce fruit. The other is not. For the virgins with oil and the virgins without oil. One does something. The other doesn't. There's this idea of the does that matters in, in the Christian life. If you're a gentleman Christian and you don't do the does, <laughs> how do you like my grammar on that one? If you don't do the does, if you don't have the does, maybe that's a better way of saying it. If you don't have the does, then you're a dud. I, I just had to at least say it. It was in my head. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You can't function in Christianity. You risk the I never knew you zone, which is not something we want to meddle with. We want to be doing Christians, not just hearing. We want to hear the word of our king and then delight to carry it out. Hey, guys, the king told us not to do this. Hey, guys, the uh, Virginia company told us explicitly not to do this. Can't you imagine being the guy on the boat that's saying that? I'm sure that would have been very popular amongst all the gentlemen. Hey, guys, hey, guys, we're not supposed to fight right now. Can't you? You're the idiot on the boat. I can just see it. I can feel it, too. And so most of us are like, I'm not going to say anything. There's no way I'm going to try and break up this fight between all these gentlemen who are wealthy and who have such arrogance. They grew up in arrogance. We cannot follow that pattern. The fakers and the faithful. In a time, in any time of Christian history when there is persecution that breaks out, boom, two churches emerge immediately. And what you saw in China when you see the increased persecution is you see, boom, two churches. You have a three-self church 
which is government authorized and protected by the government. They know exactly who's preaching because they're the ones that hired the preacher. They know exactly what's being preached because every sermon is being submitted to them for review just to make sure it doesn't include this, 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 or this, or this. You can't evangelize, but you could be legal. And then there's another church that immediately goes underground and says, but we need to carry the gospel to this nation. And that church explodes. It has the blessing of God upon it. There are twos always. And what you're going to see coming out of England is two strains of light bearing. You're going to have those that claim to represent Christ, but are actually living for themselves. And they claim to care about the natives. Instead, they're going to kill the natives. That is not a good model. And then you have another group that is going to come out of persecution, ironically, and come to this nation and live completely different and shine a bright light in this territory and actually alter the course of this country's history. The Pilgrims and the Puritans. So the Pilgrims are going to establish Plymouth in 1620. The Puritans are going to come over in droves between 1620 and 1630. So you're going to see in this period of time a total alteration. You're going to see a pattern for education that's going to come out. You're going to see a pattern for government. Now, I'm not going to discredit all that Jamestown is going to do because they're going to do things and establish things in their rough and ready way that are going to also bleed into American history. And some of those things, we can say, okay, that was actually good. Uh, I mean, we got things out of the French Revolution too, and I'm not going to try and say, hey, let's do that. Uh, However, this is not a good pattern. I'm just going to say it as, as clearly as I can. If you're going to choose Plymouth or Jamestown, make sure you navigate towards Plymouth in your model. So we have the same type of separation in the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. Now I'm going to skip most of the story and just get down to brass tacks. 30,000 men, uh, fighting men come to Gideon and he immediately separates out 20,000 because they're fearful. It's like we can't have that. Now, technically, it's God that is separating them out, okay? I shouldn't say Gideon separating them. God's actually the one doing this. So he lops off 20,000. And they're up against such a massive amount. I don't remember how many uh, it is, but it's, I think it's in a couple hundred thousand territory that they're against. And so 30,000 still is, like, pathetic. And they're going to lop off 20,000. And then this happens. And the people said unto Gideon, the people are yet, and I say the people, and the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Uh, we only have 10,000. The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. God seems to be in the business of separating out, purifying what is his, his fighting men. This is what he's done throughout history. And what's interesting is his reason is lest Israel puff itself up and vaunt itself to think that they did this, God is going to prune back his fighting men, his troops, his body, his expression in this earth. And so what we're going to see is a test is going to come, and it's going to come at a river bank where Gideon is supposed to watch how the men interact with the water. Those that go down and actually stick their face in the water are actually going to be eliminated. But those that kneel down, cup the water, and bring it to their mouth, 
are actually the ones that are going to be kept. That's 300 of them. What's the difference between the two? Those that have thirst and quench the thirst without thought of the enemy. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're so thirsty, they're going to plant their face in the water. And when they do, they lose all sense of perspective of where the enemy is. The others are going to kneel down and bring it up to their mouth. And as a result, maintain vision. And God's going to separate out 9,700 of the men and send them home. And he's going to end up with 300 that are ready to fight. In a strange sense, I would say we're in a similar boat right now. Where we're approaching a river of self-protectiveness. And how are you going to handle that? And and I don't know if it's called self-protectiveness. It's just like the resource that you need for life, the, the sustenance of living the human life out, how you're going to take care of your family. When you come up to that, some people are just going into the store and just grabbing all the toilet paper off the shelves and hauling it home. Out! That's not how we live as Christians. That's Jamestown stuff. You think it's all about you? You've been given strength so that you can give it to others. God knows that you need the water. But when you're drinking that water, you make sure you know precisely where you're at and you know where that enemy is at. If that enemy comes over the hill, when you lean down to take care of your own needs, you're ready for battle. See, all of us have needs right now. We live in a world that is odd, is off, is off kilter, is dizzy, is cloudy. And we need to still take care of things. We do need toilet paper. That is such an obscure story in American history, isn't it? The toilet paper, epi- toilet paper problem, toilet paper shortage. I mean, one of the top Google searches at that time was alternatives to toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, this was a weird time, right? But it tests us. It tests us as Christians. I remember, you know, the Ludi family deliberately walking through this process like, okay, we are not going to hoard We are not, but we need toilet paper. We have eight of us. I mean, toilet paper just sort of disappears in our house. If you don't replenish it, you have issues. And so as a result, how do you navigate through these things? So I remember, you know, they would deliver toilet paper into the store. And I was there at a time when there was a fresh batch. And I'm feeling sort of awkward because I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm there just to get toilet paper. But I do need toilet paper. And I remember there was another guy, he must have been just like me. You know, so we're sort of dealing with the same thing. And so I walked towards the toilet paper, and then he, he stopped. He was moving at the same time. He goes, no, no, uh, after you. And I go, no, 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 uh, after you. <laughs> we both don't want to be gentlemen Christians. We want to be pilgrims. We want to do this right, but how do we approach that river? How do we engage right now in this time? I want us to be in the 300. I don't want to be sent home. I don't want the I never knew you, Eric. I want the Eric, well done, my good and faithful servant. I know you guys do too. We need to exercise this reality in our life. We must aggressively act out our Christianity right now. When the word of God speaks to us, We say, yes, Lord, and we implement it. If you have orange Kool-Aid in your life right now, set down that scoop, take the whole bottle of it if necessary, and throw it out. Stop going to the old gentlemanly Jamestown system of trying to work out your Christianity. 
I know how many of us think, if I were to do that, I could lose my job. If I were to do that, I could, you know, be, I mean, I could be arrested maybe. Who knows what could happen? I could be fined at the, you know, at the, at the least. Uh, how am I supposed to navigate through this as a Christian? Not as a Jamestown one. In other words, you'd, you'd need to recognize that this is going to mean sacrifice. This is going to mean cost. This is going to mean <clears throat> prison, crosses. It always has. Why should we be surprised? Isn't there a scripture that says, do not consider it strange, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. And why is it that we still continue to consider it strange? We have a heritage that has given us a foundation in this country for a certain degree of freedom for our spiritual expression, but it has also created a laxness in our soul. We are like the 1600s England, and we are of the gentleman class, and it's high time that we wake up and recognize that if we're going to fulfill the king's commission, we're going to have to get to that new world. There's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some difficulties. There's going to be some threats coming out of the woods. But we need to know how to handle our weapons so that we don't harm the natives. We need to know how to work the land to bring forth a crop. We need to know how to live in this hostile territory and bring the glory of Jesus Christ to this land. Are we going to be, I'll give you two options, okay, you pick, I can't pick for you, that's one of the frustrations of being a pastor is I can't force you to do anything, but I can plead, I can speak really loud, not all of that always works, it's the Holy Spirit that has to invite us. Gentlemen Christians, are we going to be gentlemen Christians that refuse to work and merely desire to satisfy our own personal cravings? Or are we going to be Christian Christians? What kind of Christian are you? A Christian. Christian. Isn't that a great adjective? A Christian Christian? Yeah, that's, that's what I want to be. I don't want to just be a Christian. I want to be a Christian Christian. You know, like the real thing? You know, like the one that actually matches what the King's Commission is? That's what I want to be. A Christian Christians that roll up our spiritual sleeves and prepare to do some hard work. It's time to do some hard work. It's time to employ everything that we know we are supposed to do and to do it now. We are built for this hour. We have been trained for right now. Let's get excited. This is the time we want to be alive. So start practicing your song in the prison cell now. You can just sort of imagine, like when you dream of your future, you could dream of a prison cell. And you could sing a song and practice and exercise. Just like, you know, many of us, when I was growing up, I would go out and play basketball. And, I, you know, I would hear it's like, three, two, one, I go, and, ah, and everyone, the crowd goes wild, the, to the team swarms me. You guys can practice being Christians. Will you deny Christ or die, Eric? I will not deny Christ. And everyone's silent. There's no cheers. But then I hear it. Heaven on their feet going. Ah. Have you ever stood on an Olympian Olympic stand in your imagination? It's like and they're playing your song. And everyone in your country's crying. And, and you're mouthing it along because that's the cool thing to do when you're up there. And you look good. It's your moment. Start reinvigorating your imagination with your moment. Your moment of standing for truth when all are sitting. Your moment for standing up for Christ 
when it is going to cost you your life. The moment of breaking through that fog bank, breaking through that concrete wall to reach that lost soul that is saying, no, no, leave me alone. I can't leave you alone. Those are the moments we're built for, not for Olympic medal stands and for last second shots. I know what appeals to us. It's the human side, but we have a tendency towards gentlemanly Christianity. We need to cultivate the real thing. Start imagining the right way of living so that your dreams are accurate and in alignment with what God has designed you for. Father, here we are. Use us. We can't do this, Lord, but you can. So move in and take us. Take our faculties. Take our hands and our feet. Take our eyes and our mouths. Take our minds. Take these bodies and make them the body of Christ for such an hour as this, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.